Physicians with lived experience of being sick in some way or another make really great doctors. They really do. We come with a toolkit that's really hard to teach. And not only can we connect on a level with our patients, you watch it influence our colleagues around us. And it's a really valuable resource to lose. This is Meaningful Medicine. In a challenging and unpredictable world with high burnout rates, this is a podcast where incredible individuals share their most meaningful patient experiences and focus on those moments of positivity and joy that spark their love of healthcare and change the way they practice medicine. Hi, I'm Nicole Hohenstein, and I'm an emergency medicine resident at UCSF. Hi, I'm Shiva Kayambashi. I'm a doctor and professor of family and community medicine at UCSF. We're the co-hosts of Meaningful Medicine, We created this podcast to highlight stories of healthcare professionals who have found a sense of meaning, resilience, and joy in their work. Hey, Shiva, how are you doing? Hey, Nicole, I'm doing really well. I'm so happy to see you again, and I'm so happy that we get to interview our special guest tonight. I am so excited. We're going to be tackling the topic of ableism in medicine, which is something that I've been really wanting to talk about for quite a while, but it's taken a bit to find the perfect guests to talk about this important topic. Yeah, I'm also really excited to talk about this. This isn't something that we talk about as a general topic area in most settings. I haven't discussed with too many colleagues or friends. And I do remember having the experience of one of my classmates in medical school who had cerebral palsy and had to really swim against every current just to get into medical school and beyond. And I remember we had some dialogues around that. And I just was so respectful of his strength and courage to have to go against currents to get to where he wanted to be as a goal to become a doctor, but it's not fair. And I recall that everything about his experience felt like it was unfairly set up against him. And everything that was relatively simple for everyone else who was more able-bodied was taken for granted, I think, by most, including the faculty and the administration. Uh, And that was many years ago. And I don't know that we've changed very much since my many years ago experience. How about you, Nicole? What have your experiences been in recent times? Yeah, I think this topic is especially important. We talk a lot about diversity. We have talked about the topic of mental health in medicine. And I think it would not be complete if we have not actually talked about this topic of ableism in medicine. Medicine is a unique field. It is both physically and mentally taxing. With that said, we should feel comfortable asking for accommodations and being able to support differently abled people. And so I think what I struggle with is we don't see that diversity, I think, in at least my medical school class, looking at the doctors that I've met. And I don't think we're matching the diversity of our patients. And I think that's where we're failing. And I just remember one of my med school classmates ended up injuring herself midway through medical school when she was doing her third year rotations and she was unable to walk and she needed to wheel around and she was on her surgical rotation. And instead of having people accommodate her, she instead had to get there hours early, had to stay late and try to accommodate to them. And I think she viewed her situation as the problem rather than the system being the problem to not support her with her different needs at the time. 
and her condition was temporary. I just can't imagine that being an everyday condition. And I think what's special about medicine is you constantly are meeting new people. You're constantly in different situations. And to constantly have to, one, discuss how you are differently abled and then discuss what your needs are every single day to different people the exhaustion I could imagine, as well as just having to talk about your health on a daily basis just does not sound like something that should happen. And I think that our system should just be set up that we can accommodate everyone who has different abilities. And so I definitely think it's important that we're tackling this topic today. Yeah, I really appreciate your sharing that exactly. And, you know, I'm going to introduce our guest because I think we're both really excited about her and we've read her article eagerly and we've discussed it together as well. So it's really nice to have the author and a very special guest with us today. So Dr. Megan Roy O'Reilly is currently a neurology resident at Stanford. Dr. Roy O'Reilly got her MD PhD at the University of Texas in Houston, and she has special interests in neuro-oncology as well as aerospace medicine, which I think must be fascinating if we can talk about that. Dr. Roy O'Reilly co-authored a recent article that highlights the important issue of ableism in medicine that was praised by many groups, including Docs with Disabilities Initiative. Her article is titled, Stigma Associated with Requesting Accommodations, the High Cost of Ableism in Medicine. And we're excited to learn more about ableism in medicine today. And we just want to welcome you, Dr. Megan Roy O'Reilly, to our podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I think it is an important topic that we're just starting to discuss more in the space of medicine, and it's absolutely important to hear from a variety of different voices. And so I'm very grateful to have been uh, chosen as one of them. Well, we're so happy to have you on. As always, we like to start each episode by asking our guests to, in short, share a meaningful moment from early on in your training that was a particularly formative or defining experience. Sure. So I'm now in my fourth year of residency. When I was an intern, I was diagnosed with Charcot-Marie tooth disease, which a lot of us maybe remember from step one, but it's a very common rare disease. One in 2,500 people have some form of it. It's a peripheral nerve disease. So the way it shows up for me is that when I turned 30, when I was an intern, I noticed that my hand muscles were shrinking. I had weaker grip strength. I would drop things. I had a really hard time finding shoes that fit. I tripped a lot. I twisted my ankles a lot. My legs started to look really skinny and I had a harder time feeling my feet. And it all happened very gradually. So it had probably been happening for the past couple of decades. And then I fell off a cliff, so to speak, when I started intern year. We do internal medicine as interns. And so you're walking 20,000, 30,000 steps a day. You're standing for sometimes seven or eight hours when you're rounding because that's the internal medicine way. And my symptoms sort of declared themselves. And so it took me a very long time to get the time to go to a doctor and get my diagnosis. I actually sort of suspected what it was because it's in my own field. And then it took a really long time for me to get my accommodations. It took a long time for me to figure out who to talk to. I ended up having to disclose to many different people in order to figure out the right route to get things like handicapped parking. Previously, I'd been walking more than half a mile back and forth from the parking lot and other accommodations that I had in day-to-day life. And I think even once I had the accommodations, it was really hard for people around me to adjust their expectations of what a resident was supposed to look like. I'm the first openly disabled resident in my program. And I think the most formative experience for me was 
sitting down with an attending who expressed concern that my learning was being impaired because of an injury that I had at the time related to my CMT. You know, I wasn't rounding on every single patient that we had as a team. I was just rounding on the ones I was responsible for because I was in a lot of pain and eventually needed surgery. And I remember sitting with her and I had felt guilty about having this disability and I had felt guilty about being different and I had felt worried that I wasn't keeping up. I remember when she said that, I asked her, what objective evidence do you have that I'm not performing to the same level that my peers are? If we're worried my learning is suffering, what is the evidence that my learning is suffering? Am I not keeping up with them? Are there certain areas? And there weren't because the fact of the matter is my learning wasn't suffering because of my disability. I was delivering excellent patient care. I was incredibly efficient. I was a good mentor to medical students. I really enjoyed talking with patients and all of those encounters brought me a great deal of joy. I was really good at my job. And that was the first time after two years of feeling like I was not enough and there was something wrong. That was the first time I knew for a fact that my needs for these accommodations outweighed someone else's preferences. And I think that was when I first really accepted that I deserved to be there just as much as everyone else was. And that the more confident I felt in that, the easier it was going to be to change other people's minds about it too. And that's actually proven to be true. I think back about that day a lot. And I wish it hadn't happened the way it had. You know, it was uncomfortable in the moment, but absolutely had a lasting impact on me. And I think that really was the last day I ever felt guilty about being different. Such a meaningful story. Thank you for sharing that. And you can see how it impacted you to this day forward. And in your really amazing article, you highlight a lot of really important points. But before we jump into ableism, can you define the term ableism and how it relates to the field of medicine? At its core, Ableism is sort of defined as discrimination in favor of able-bodied people. And I think in medicine, Dr. Pete Poulos, who is an incredible voice for disability advocacy at Stanford, he's a professor of radiology, has said many times when I've heard him talk that there is this culture of strength in medicine, even if you are able-bodied, that is very toxic. So people work when they're sick. People push themselves through their limits. It is important to be able to deliver high quality care under times of stress, but there is a certain point where you need to be meeting your base needs. And I think physicians, even without a history of disability or illness, often struggle with that. And I think they suffer because of those expectations. Physicians that have some form of disability, chronic illness, mental health condition, I think we innately feel othered as do many other groups in medicine. And there are areas of intersectionality there too, which are also important to explore. But ableism is actually something that's ingrained in medicine itself. And one concept that was introduced to me that I think was really helpful was part of it is because we have this medical model of disability. So disability in the medical model is seen as a problem with an individual. It's a deviation from the norm. And in order to improve quality of life, we have to fix those defects. We have to cure them. That's the medical model. Then there's the social model of disability, which is that a disability is something that prevents someone from being able to participate fully in life. And there's a disconnect between the functional abilities of the person and all of the things they want to do. And so what we need to do is change society to be more inclusive and more accommodating and reduce disabling environments in order to accept what ends up being a really large portion of the population, right? We all get sick. 
even if it's not forever. And so I think that is the core of ableism in medicine. Just because you are different or your body is different, whether it's for a short time or for forever, it doesn't mean there's something inherently wrong with you that needs to be fixed. And it doesn't mean that you don't still have a lot to contribute to the world. That was so well said. I could not agree more. I think it's a problem with our environment and our society, not a problem with people who just are differently abled. And just to put a number on it, so in 2021, 42.5 million Americans said that they have a disability. That's 13% of the population. So a huge percentage of Americans are dealing with this. And so I do think that given such a high population, we definitely need to accommodate. The study we mentioned earlier highlights the prevalence of disability and accommodation requests amongst first-year medical residents that was published in JAMA in May of this year, found that a significant percentage, roughly about 12% of first-year medical residents, so similar to the U.S. population, reported having disabilities. Yet more than half of residents with disabilities who needed accommodations did not request them. This is such a startling statistic. Would you mind sharing your thoughts on why residents may not disclose physical or mental disabilities and may not ask for accommodations. The article we wrote was an opinion article that I was fortunate enough to be included on. My co-author was Dr. Arga Gonzalez, and it was a commentary on an original research study by Pereira et al. that did look at first-year medical residents. And what they found was, by and large, the most common reason was the fear of stigma or bias. And then the second most common reason was the lack of clear institutional processes. So exactly actually the same things that I ended up dealing with. I could speak to both of those, which are that you're in a setting which is already relatively high pressure and you're looking at how you measure up compared to other people and you're trying to build the foundation of your career many times in academic medicine. And all of a sudden you have something that, not to speak to everyone's experience, but for me, I had a lot of doctor's appointments and physical therapy appointments and I was trying to hide them. So I would do all my appointments during the day when I was working on nights and I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't want them to think of me differently. I didn't want them to doubt my abilities as a physician. And I think initially I was very scared for people to find out. I think disclosing is a deeply personal decision that people make. And so for me, in order to accept my disability, in order for me to stop feeling guilty about it, I ended up being someone who actually had to shout it from the rooftops. (laughs) Like I needed to just disclose to everybody. All of my attendings, when I had something that I needed, I would be very upfront. I would say, look, I have CMT. This is how it affects me. We've seen patients with this. It's not a big deal, but I do need these things. Not everyone's going to feel that comfortable. And so I think figuring out who to disclose to is really difficult. It depends on the place you're at. It's different for medical students. It's different for residents. It's different for attendings. Residents are employees of the hospital where I'm at, so we technically disclose to HR. Functionally, our program directors also really do need to know, and that's also, it's really scary for a lot of people to tell their program directors because they're so intimately tied to your career. And so that was the leading cause of why residents did not want to disclose. And the second is lack of clear institutional processes. So I know for me, I realized there was this thing called accommodations and I was trying to figure out how to get them. And I emailed people to get parking accommodations and then didn't hear back. 
And I ended up finally reaching out to Stanford University's disability office because they actually have a really well-built out program. They have a website and they helped me figure out who to talk to in my GME, but nothing was really available on a website that was easy to Google. And at the end of the day, even though I'd made the decision to disclose, it took me months to figure out who I actually needed to disclose to in order to get the accommodations that I ended up having. So I think both of the findings that the fact that those were the two leading factors in the paper make a lot of sense and very much mirror you know, my lived experience. It's so wild to me that not only are you having to live with your condition and try to do the hard job of residency, but you're also having to take a lot of time and a lot of energy to kind of navigate. And it sounds like since you were the first person in your residency to openly have a disability, finding that path and trying to figure out who the resources were to be in your corner, I can only imagine it's almost like double the workload of residency. So I definitely appreciate everything that you've done and commend you. I can imagine why a lot of the residents, half the residents do not disclose and do not ask for accommodations because it sounds like it's a lot of work and a lot of time and having to talk to a lot of people and disclose a lot of personal information that it just sounds like there's so many hurdles that I could imagine a lot of people saying, you know what, that's too hard. I'm going to just suffer in silence. Yeah. And we spent so much of our time in, if you think about the journey to becoming a doctor from being pre-med to medical school for certain and residency, so much of our time is spent being judged. I talk to medical students a lot and mentor a lot of medical students, and especially third year in the worst time. You're like perpetually being watched and being judged and being critiqued. And it's just really a very difficult thing. We always want to make a good impression. We want to be judged positively. Every human does. But for sure, as you said, Megan, in medical school and in the medical world, we're judged for appearing weak or appearing tired or appearing stressed or sad or affected by this patient. We're really afraid of showing our real selves in medicine, which again, I think is really ironic because we should be a whole profession about wellness. And in fact, we're not. We're not the healthiest profession at all, nor is our training. And so I wonder, Megan, if you could share with us some of the insights that you've come to about whatever you would call the stigmas that are facing physicians with disabilities. Yeah, I think there was a really interesting study by Dr. Iazoni in 2021 that looked at the perception of physicians when it comes to disabled individuals, disabled patients. And essentially, without getting into the percentages, most physicians didn't feel strongly that patients with disability were treated unfairly in the healthcare system. So they rated that they felt they were treated fairly, but less than half of the physicians felt very confident they could provide the same quality of care to disabled patients. If you yourself don't feel like you're providing the same level of care to a patient with a disability, then how on earth could the healthcare system be treating them fairly? There's just a lot of cognitive dissonance there. And then there's also what we call the disability paradox. So in that same study, about 80% of physicians thought that disabled individuals have a worse quality of life than able-bodied individuals. But over half of individuals with moderate to severe physical disabilities actually report that they have a good or an excellent quality of life. And in patients that are physically dependent, so physically dependent on other people and ambulatory, only a third of them report a less than satisfying quality of life. And I've heard my attendings in the neuro ICU say this 
time and time again that throughout the course of their practice, you know, they see people with pretty devastating neurologic injuries, that they are always blown away by patients that graduate from the ICU and go to rehab. They're amazed at the quality of life that these patients are able to have. And so a lot of them, I think, have described to me that they've been humbled by the fact that what physicians think of as an acceptable quality of life and what patients feel as an acceptable quality of life is very different. So I think just in those two studies or those cases, it really highlights that we hold ourselves to a really high standard. We also kind of hold our patients to a really high standard and the degree of disability or difference that we tolerate in people might actually be less, it's less than it should be. It really is. I think that when people hear that they have a student with a disability who's rotating on service, my gut instinct is that they want to do right by them. They don't want to say anything wrong. You know, they want to make the person feel welcome, but they feel so uncomfortable with it because it's not something they've encountered before. Or if they've encountered it, they maybe didn't even recognize it. The fact of the matter is the vast majority of people don't disclose. We did a survey at Stanford in 2020, and actually 20% of Stanford residents and fellows qualify as having a disability based on the ADA criteria. I'm like the first person in my program who's disclosed, but I was definitely not the first person in my program with a disability of some kind. And I think we're afraid of what we don't know. And so I've seen the attitude shift dramatically in my program. I've seen them shift dramatically in every off-service rotation that I've rotated on. I think as more people feel comfortable disclosing, as we make efforts towards dedicated recruitment of faculty with disabilities and leadership with disabilities. And we make it very clear to medical students with disabilities that we will find our best ways to accommodate them and to other trainees. I think it will start to shift those prejudices. People are afraid of what they don't know. And so the answer is really to take the scariness out of it. But those people, they have to feel welcome when they come here. And that means that we have to change our spaces means we have to change our approach to things like rounding. It means we have to be more open-minded to solutions in the operating room. And I'm glad we're beginning to have those conversations now. Incredible. I really appreciate that. I do think we need a normalization of body diversity, of ability diversity, of different mental health diversity. I think if we only have one view of what a physician looks like, how a physician thinks, how a physician moves, then we're going to be really limited in who can offer care. And just as you said, I can only imagine that doctors with disabilities who know what it's like to live with a disability, heck yeah, they're going to be able to treat their patients much more effectively. We know doctors that look like their patients, their patients report much better outcomes and much better medical treatment. And so I think, you know, normalizing this, having a more diverse workforce, having a more diverse medical student population and a more diverse residency population is much needed. So it's very exciting to talk about. We've talked about in the past mental health in medicine with Dr. Bullock on a past episode, and he highlighted some of the barriers to accessing mental health resources in medical school and residency. I'd love to talk about a little bit more about the biases and stigma associated with having a disability and how you see the culture of ableism affecting trainees' well-being and their ability to complete training. Absolutely. I've heard Dr. Bullock speak before, and he's incredible. 
I think in residents and fellows and even attendings and also medical students, I think it applies to all levels of training. If you have a known disability, it is a difficult decision whether or not to disclose when you're first doing interviewing and applying. It's a deeply personal decision. But going somewhere that wants you, going somewhere that is willing to work with you can really make all the difference. And those places are out there. There are institutions or even individual programs that are much further along their journey and being inclusive than others are. It's just a reality of the world. And I think by virtue of the fact that I've been in internal medicine and neurology and I've seen how two different programs handled it, I can say it makes a huge difference to have a program director like my neurology program director, Nerali Vora, who essentially said, okay, I've never dealt with this before. What do you need? Tell me what you need and we'll figure out how to get it. And I'm assuming your needs might change over time. So we'll keep checking back in. And she does. She checks in pretty regularly and says, are you getting what you need? Is this working? Is this not working? And I think having someone like that in your corner, finding someone like that is instrumental in completing your training. And it may not always be your program director. It may be someone else at your institution. It it may be a mentor that actually has a lived experience with a disability or chronic health condition or mental illness. I find myself now becoming that person for junior residents. And you do need an ally in your corner. For some people, it will be in their GME, in their HR, in their diversity, equity, and inclusion group. Some people will only be diagnosed with or manifest their disability and their chronic illness once they're already in residency. But if you know before your training, even if you're a resident or a fellow and you're looking for your attending job, you want to find someplace that's having those conversations, that has that support network. Doing it without anyone in your corner is tough. It's not that it's not doable. It is just really tough. And so I think that can be the benefit to disclosing is you can find people that are willing to help you or find people that are willing to help you navigate the process of figuring out and getting what you need. But I do acknowledge that there are other trainees for which that's not true. And they are already firmly entrenched in their program and they're already on their track and they don't have the luxury of picking a place that is supportive. And in those cases, I think it can be really hard. I have to imagine, much like myself, that there are people who it gets to the point where you really question, is it worth putting myself at risk of injury? Is it worth working through pain? Is it worth doing all of these things without any support? And so that's the risk we run by not working really hard to change our environments and making it so that the vast majority of programs, ideally eventually all of them, have the tools to make individuals with disabilities feel included and to help them be successful. Physicians with lived experience of being sick in some way or another make really great doctors. They really do. We come with a toolkit that's really hard to teach. And not only can we connect on a level with our patients, you watch it influence our colleagues around us. And it's a really valuable resource to lose. I think any physician that doesn't see that is short-sighted. And I hope they change their minds. I really appreciate everything you shared and this last part about how physicians who have had lived experiences of some type of disability, whether short-term or long-term, where they feel vulnerable and they feel pain and they suffer. We are all human and we all need to acknowledge that we're no different than our patients. And I think I, I really feel like any time in my life where I've experienced any kind of suffering of any kind, acute or chronic, and I've had both, I feel so much more connected to everyone else around me. I think suffering in, in one way or another, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, physically, brings us closer to understanding. And I think that's kind of the heart of empathy and compassion. So I really appreciate your sharing how we are actually 
better doctors and we give better care for the experience, uh, not because we're weak, but because we understand in our own way from our own lived experiences. And I don't think that residency programs and administrators, I think they mean well. As you said, I think a lot of them don't know what to do or don't know that there is anything to do something about because so many physicians, residents don't disclose for fear because of it's a catch 22, isn't it? You know, the fear of stigma and the fear of being judged and perceived and prejudiced against makes people not share. And then the not sharing their truth makes it such that programs can't help or, or accommodate. And so I think that looks like it's a part of the cycle of misunderstanding or absence of understanding. I wonder if you could share any other thoughts and experiences that you have that are real obstacles that could be identified for residency programs and medical schools not implementing accommodations. What are the obstacles to them implementing accommodations? Yeah, so a lot of the times, some students, whatever phase of their training they're at, whether medical students or house staff, some people have been living with their disability for a very long period of time, and so are very familiar with what they need. But even those people, you're adjusting to a very unusual work life. You are practicing across multiple buildings, multiple institutions. I work at three different sites. You're working crazy hours. You're working nights. You're working shifts that like people outside of the medical profession would never be allowed to work. And there's a lot of questions there, right? Is not doing overnight shifts, is that a reasonable accommodation? What's reasonable or not? Because one would argue that the vast majority of things that we do to ourselves in medicine are really just not reasonable working conditions at baseline. So you really have to look at that. Is it reasonable to have women in their third trimester working 24-hour shifts? Is it reasonable to chronically sleep deprive someone who has a history of mental health condition knowing that sleep deprivation could destabilize them? You can replace that with seizure disorder or migraine. So there's always a question that comes up of what's reasonable and how it will impact clinical service. There are issues of accessibility of the hospital itself. So if there are not electric doors on call rooms, for example, like we don't have electric doors at Stanford, the doors are really heavy. I can absolutely see it would be impossible for a wheelchair user to navigate the doors to our call rooms unless they had someone to help them open the door, which defeats the purpose of it being accessible in my mind. Sometimes elevators are broken in buildings and things like that, things that are harder to control. So I think because medical training is the way it is, at baseline, we are probably doing things to people in terms of Maslow's hierarchy or needs that are already not ideal. And then you're adding some additional thing in the mix. So I think that part of it's hard. The other difficulty is that many people are diagnosed while they're in training or their needs changed while they're in training. And so in addition to the program trying to figure out how to accommodate them while meeting the needs of service and working within the constraints of the physical spaces that they're working in, it may be that the individual doesn't know what they need, doesn't know what's allowed. They don't know what the possibilities are. And so there's a role called a disability service provider we do not have one at Stanford. Very much wish we did. And their role is to come in and they're familiar ideally with a wide range of accommodations and also the very unique environment that is medical training. And they can help make recommendations, which is really nice because it's hard when you're working 80 hours a week if someone is like, what do you need to make this doable? And you're like, I don't even know. Right now it feels impossible. It took me a while to really sit down and think about what would make a big difference in my day-to-day -day life. And my disability was actually relatively straightforward to accommodate because 
at the end of the day, it really is, I need to sit down during rounds and I need a close handicap parking space. But for other people, particularly people in surgical or procedural fields, it's not always that straightforward. What I want to caution people against is thinking that it's impossible because it's not. Dr. Karen Marasco is a neurosurgeon who was born with spina bifida. She was the first physically disabled neurosurgery resident to graduate from Columbia. And then she subsequently went on to become the chair of neurosurgery at Michigan. And she was the first female chair of neurosurgery they ever had. I think at certain points in her career, she wore leg braces, which I've also worn to work. And then she operates in a power chair. There are surgeons who operate in power chairs. It is possible. Even things that you think are not possible, human ingenuity knows no limits. If we want to fix the problem, we'll find a solution. But having someone like a disability service provider can be really useful because then you're not putting the entire burden on the resident or fellow or medical student to figure it out. The other barrier, once you have all of those things, is disseminating the fact that those accommodations exist to your faculty. And also training and teaching your faculty that workplace accommodations are a legally protected right. They are not special treatment. Your preference as an attending to round standing for nine hours, again, does not outweigh that person's need, in my case, to sit, in someone else's case, to utilize a wheelchair, in someone else's case, to have frequent breaks to deliver their insulin or to pump if they're breastfeeding. And that can be tough. That can be tough. Figuring out how to disseminate those needs for accommodations while protecting the student's privacy. In my case, again, disclosing made it easier because I'm very upfront with my attendings. Like, hey, I have this. I need these things. <laughs> End of conversation. But not everybody is going to want to do that. And they should get the same amount of protection that I get. No questions asked. So there are many barriers, but it is possible to address all of them. And, and not only should it be a goal, it really it is a requirement. We are not doing it very well right now, but we actually do need to accommodate it legally people have a right to work and we have to respect that and we have to do our best to keep them working. Oh, that was so well said. Thank you so, so much. I think the thing that I struggle with is that a lot of change and a lot of advocating for this population falls a lot on people who are experiencing disabilities. And in my opinion, that burden should not have to fall on that person. And I think you talk about the struggle between advocating for yourself and for others like you, but also that pull and tug of having to disclose personal health information. It's not an easy path. And I think there has to be better ways to make the accommodations general. So, you know, just as you mentioned women in their third trimester who are pregnant and not working night shifts, there's been research done that showcases those women who work night shifts in their third trimester are at much higher risk of having miscarriages. So certain programs, including mine at UCSF, third trimester pregnant females do not work night shifts. And that's just now a blanket policy. Nobody has to ask for that accommodation. So I think it's really building these general accommodations to try to support everyone to hopefully normalize that it's okay, again, not to be able to handle what is considered a crazy workplace and to really have those in place. So Students, trainees, attendings don't have to build their own path and build their individualized plan, although I, it sounds like a lot of it could be individualized if needed.
In your article, you emphasize the importance of accessible workplace design and recruitment efforts for diverse faculty and trainees. Could you share some of the practical steps that programs and institutions can take to achieve a truly inclusive workplace for physicians with disabilities? We have to make our healthcare spaces more accessible. And I think as hospitals do new construction, they need to keep in mind accessible routes of travel, enough accessible parking, that the doorways are wide enough for people who are using mobility aids to actually get through them. You need enough handicapped accessible laboratories, having signage with Braille, having captioning services or something called CART available for people with hearing impairments. And I think the thing that people need to keep in mind when they're designing these spaces is that they need to make the staff areas just as accessible. So you need wide doors to the workrooms. You need handicapped accessible staff restrooms. You need designated handicapped parking for staff as well. And so as we're making our spaces more accessible for patients, we also need to keep in mind people working come from the same spectrum of humanity as the people who are walking through the front doors of the clinic. And then I think, you know, in terms of recruitment, people are going to want to go to institutions where they can see people like themselves who have been successful. When you see someone in leadership who openly discloses their disability or chronic illness, who does not feel that there might possibly be recriminations for it. When you go to places that are having conversations about it, having grand rounds, making sure to include it as part of their DEI sort of diversity curriculum, we need to start doing all of those things sort of en masse. We need to look at including disability more into the medical school curriculum, both how to take care of patients with disability, because again, that's most of our patients, and also how to accommodate for it in our own workforce. And so I think when we start having more of those open conversations, it will help with recruitment of individuals to those spaces, especially if institutions put forth that they actively are looking to support those individuals. I do think it is important for people who feel comfortable disclosing to disclose. Not everyone needs to. For some people, it will not be the right answer by sort of virtue of their personality. But for people that do feel comfortable, there is so much power in I'm here. This is part of who I am. I am not going anywhere. We're going to figure out how we're going to work together. And it normalizes it to an extent that most of the time, I honestly don't even remember that I have a disability. I mean, I do when I try to do something, but I don't feel like anybody treats me any differently. They may have for those first few weeks or months while they were adjusting, but at this point, it is just another fact about me that people accept and we go on with our days. Disclosure is not right for everyone, but I think there are attendings out there. There are department chairs out there who have either hidden disability or chronic illness or have struggled with mental health issues. And there are, there are some of them that are brave enough to share it. And I hope as these conversations continue, there are more people who have been so successful in their lives who are willing to be open about the things that statistically a lot of them did go through because I do think it makes a huge, huge difference. Thank you so much for all of that. We are getting close to wrapping up the podcast. And at the end, we usually like to ask our guests if you could share some advice and wisdom. So could you, Dr. Roy O'Reilly, share some advice that you might have for students and residents who have disabilities, advice on how to process and really advocate for themselves and for one another? I think the most important thing is to realize that you have intrinsic 
value that has nothing to do with what you can do for someone else or what someone else's expectations are of you. And if you have lived experience with a disability, chronic illness, a mental health condition, and you've made it this far in medical training, it is because you are an exceptional individual with a great deal of resilience and you have fought a harder battle than maybe anybody knew from the outside. And you deserve to be here just as much as everyone else does. And anyone that tells you differently is wrong and narrow-minded. And when you inevitably are successful in what you want to do, you will be the one to change their minds. Just keep that at the forefront of your mind. You will be the one to change their minds about what limitations or lack thereof you actually have. But you are valuable. You've earned your place where you are. And it might take a while to fully believe that, but the world is a more valuable place with you in it. And our medical space is a more valuable place with you in it. And just don't give up. Wow. I truly have chills. I think you are an incredible motivational speaker and thank you so, so much. I have a feeling that many of our listeners, if not all of them, are going to be extremely moved. We really appreciate the time you've spent and the wisdom that you've imparted and the courage that you have demonstrated and the resilience. Truly, it has been an honor. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Megan. That was amazing. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in today and allowing us to be one of your meaningful moments. Please rate, review, and subscribe, and share with friends, family, and colleagues. Meaningful Medicine was produced by Shiva Kayambashi, Nicole Hohenstein, David Elkin, Nikki Elkin, Aheli Chattapadai, and Leigh Kodama. Editing by Nicole Hohenstein, Nikki Elkin, and Leigh Kodama. Intro and closing by Daniel Wentling. On Meaningful Medicine, we are careful to ensure that all stories are compliant with healthcare privacy laws and details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are of the person speaking and not their employer.